Transforming care through genomic medicine, personalized therapeutics, health services and outcomes research, and innovations in healthcare delivery. We're Children's Mercy Kansas City, presenting our audio interview series, Transformational Pediatrics, with host Dr. Michael Smith. So our topic today is recognizing the depressed athlete. Are student athletes less likely to ask for help? My guest is Dr. Shayla Sullivan. Dr. Sullivan is a child and adolescent psychiatrist at Children's Mercy Kansas City, and she is the assistant professor of pediatrics at the University of Kansas City. Dr. Sullivan, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be here. Let me start off. I got this from Children's Mercy, so let me just read to you... Um, what they wrote about a study. A recent study found that student athletes experience mental health issues at about the same rate as the general student body, which is 30%. However, while 30% of those struggling students will get help, only 10% of their athlete counterparts will seek help. I found that to be very interesting. Why, why do you think student athletes are less likely to reach out for help? You know, Dr. Mike, I think it's a great question, and I think it deserves further research. I can tell you that the literature doesn't really explain it yet for us, but in my patient population, what I see is that athletes are under quite a bit of pressure as student-athletes. They're trying to balance both their academics and the sports. Um, I can give you an example. Just last week I had a patient in my office who was going to cancel her upcoming therapy appointment with a really great psychologist because she was going to miss practice. And if you miss practice, then you can't play in the game the following day. So I do think there are some real time barriers that play a role for the patients that I see, but I also think stigma plays a big role. And yeah, I think yeah. that it's, it's difficult to seek care, but I think when we have Olympians like Anthony Irvin and Michael Phelps coming out and talking about their own recovery and, and showing that you can really flourish after you get help, I, I think things are going to be changing. Well, no, I, and I agree, and I think that that's the best way to go, right? Because I remember when I was a student athlete, you we didn't talk about stuff like that. I mean, we talked about the game with our parents, and that was it. It wasn't right. about whether you felt good or you were depressed or anything like that. So I think I think it's stigma does have a lot to do with that. Um, what caused Children's Mercy specifically to really start looking into screening for suicide and depression? Well, so um, it's been several years that we've been working on this issue. Um, for various reasons, Joint Commission wanted us to look at this. Um, we see, unfortunately, way too many young people after suicide attempts in the hospital. So that's part of my role here is evaluating kids after they've had a suicide attempt. And it really felt like putting so much effort into after the fact. And we really felt like we should be doing more proactively. So um, the sports medicine division actually lost two patients to suicide in the fall of 2014. And at that time, Dr. Kevin Latz, their director, came to me and said, you know, we need to be doing more. Um, this is a really psychologically minded group of people. I mean, they really understand the mind-body connection with their patients, but they understood that we needed to take more steps. And so they welcomed us to implement the suicide screening in their area. Well, okay, so when does that screening actually take place then? Is this, is this something that all these athletes are going through before, you know, a season starts, or is it an ongoing? I mean, when does it actually sure, happen? Sure, sure. Great question. So when a patient comes in for a visit in our sports medicine division, they are greeted, um, they're checked in, and they're greeted by an athletic trainer or a nurse, and their parent is given a pamphlet that helps explain our suicide screening program to provide more education. But then the teen is, is brought back to be seen alone, and this is just for our patients 12 and up. And, and they are asked the 
suicide screening questions. So we, we're not asking our nurses and our trainers to become psychologists or psychiatrists. What we want them to do is to be very sensitive and asking these screening questions. And then once they identify someone who's at risk, then they connect this individual with a social worker that same day who does a more thorough evaluation. The parents, of course, are always included in that. Whenever we have concerns for a child, we don't keep that a secret. And then the social worker helps provide recommendations about next steps. We find that most kids are not acutely suicidal there in the moment, in the, hosp- in the visit, but they do need to be linked to resources and see a therapist typically. So, now, yeah, so you, the okay. beginning of the visit. Okay, so, well, should, should this type of screening then for suicide and depression, uh, I mean, obviously you guys are focused here at Children's Mercy doing it, but what's the vision for this? I mean, do you see this becoming more of a routine in pediatric um, visits uh, at high schools in general with counselors there? I mean, what's the scope or vision for this? Well, that's a, that's a great question. I think that the field is really um, changing a lot right now and growing a lot. So our vision at Children's Mercy is universal screening, and that's what we are working towards. So it's not just in sports medicine. We're also screening in our teen clinic and eating disorder center with our diabetes patients. Um, lots of different parts of the hospital where this is growing because we understand that suicide is the second leading cause of death for young people right now, and we really feel like early intervention is where it's at. That's, that's really where we've had so many successes, right, in pediatric medicine is when you intervene early. And I think, unfortunately, with suicide, that hasn't happened up to this point. But it's really impressive to see how many kids will tell you, yes, I'm struggling, yes, I need help, and then we can do something in advance, which I think is really exciting for the patients and the families. So, so the back to the initial screening though. That's so that's done without the parent at f- that first, and and that you find helpful because then the teen is going to be maybe more honest, more open at that moment. Obviously, yeah. the parent comes back into that conversation or is brought into that conversation if need be. Tell us a little bit about the screening questions themselves. Yeah, so right now we're using questions from the Ask Suicide Screener, and this was developed at National Institute for Health and has been validated to be used with teenagers um, on the ER setting, adolescent medicine units, and we're actually working on a validation study with them right now in conjunction with Harvard. And um, it's basically four short questions. It takes less than a minute to ask the questions, and then um, we... We refer them and get them help. So it asks about thoughts of wanting to be dead, um, thoughts about actually killing yourself, and asks about prior suicide attempts because we know that those are some of the biggest risk factors and predictors of someone being at risk for suicide. Now, you, you kind of hinted on this a little bit, Dr. Sullivan, at, at the beginning, but maybe we could run through this again. So once... Once you have identified through this screening, a, in this case, a student athlete who's at risk, what's the next step? Sure. So we have, we are really lucky at Children's Mercy to have a lot of very experienced and astute social workers. And so they come in to the visit and do a thorough evaluation. So they ask a lot more questions to assess for risk and figure out the background of what's going on for this patient. And of course, include the parent in that interview as well. And then they help make recommendations for what happens next. So it's extremely rare that a child would need to go to inpatient psychiatry at that point. Typically, they are able to go home with a safety plan. Um, One of the 
most important interventions we find is where we talk about means restriction. So the social worker in that interview talks with the family about making sure that there is not access for this teenager to the ways that young people die by suicide. So um, how are firearms stored in the home? How are medications stored in the home? Those are things that we address because we know from research that that can really decrease risk for our patients. And then the social worker follows up. We feel like follow-up is really key. And so the following day, they call the family to check in, see how things are going, and to make sure that they're still working with the plan that had been set in place the previous day. We find it's very common, pretty normal, actually, for teenagers to resist help and to say the following day, you know, I didn't mean it. I'm fine now. Don't make me go to therapy. And so we want to reassure parents that that's normal, but that they need to follow through. And a lot of parents really appreciate that support. Speaking of the parents, when they find out that there's this kind of um, suicide and depression screening going on, Mm -hmm. how have they responded to this? You know, it's been really fascinating because I think there was a lot of fear on the part of um, medical providers that parents would be upset. You know, here I am bringing my child in for an ankle injury or a knee injury, and you're asking about thoughts of suicide. We didn't expect this. And yet, the vast majority of parents have been very positive. We've had parents pull us aside and thank us for this program. People have said, you know, my son had this problem. I wish someone would have asked him. I had a mom actually pull me aside in public and and thank us for the screening, and she just explained how she didn't know that her daughter was struggling until she was screened in clinic, and now she's seeing a therapist, and she's talking to the family so much more. So I think the vast majority of people really understand this as a problem, We're also collecting some parent satisfaction data in one of our studies, and it's been really interesting to see how many parents really understand this notion that perhaps their kids may not talk to the parent, but they may talk to a medical professional, and that's okay. The main thing the parent wants is for their child to be safe, and so they're open to that. And there's a very small percentage, I think, of parents that are hesitant, and we find that the theme there is worry about risk and worry about is this safe to ask these questions. So that's where we're providing more education because there's quite a bit of evidence in the literature that tells us it's safe to ask these questions, that it doesn't put thoughts into kids' heads, but what it does is it increases the chance that they will actually talk to us and we can get them help. Right, right. And, and, and that's supported, as you said, in, in lots of different studies, even for adults as well. It's okay to ask questions. Like, as a matter of fact, it's, it usually diffuses situations. But um, what about, I'm going to focus it on the parents still. When a parent finds out that sure. their child um, may have an issue here, are most of them surprised or have you just confirmed kind of what they've suspected? That's a great question. I think that we have a variety of responses. We've had some parents that are really shocked and very surprised. Um, we've had some that had a sense that something was wrong and now feel validated. I, I think some parents even have told us they feel like they should be asking their child these questions, but they're not sure how and they're scared to. And so this really opens up the conversation and gives them an avenue to do that. And, and you know, during the evaluation, we reassure parents, hey, it's okay to talk to your child about this. It's actually a preferred thing. Kids are often going to feel comfortable with their parents, sometimes not parents. Some kids tell me in their safety plan they would rather turn to a coach or a teacher or a neighbor or someone in their clergy, and, and that's okay. I think this is a really important issue where we need all hands on deck. This is not just a responsibility for parents or for nurses or doctors. I think we need everybody involved. But I think parents really um, have different responses. And, and it is difficult. I mean, this is a very difficult topic to broach. But I think perhaps that's why it is avoided in some, some settings. Right. And I think many yeah. parents appreciate that we're willing to talk about this very sensitive issue. 
Dr. Sullivan, um, this is amazing work, obviously, and I want to thank you for your passion um, when it comes to suicide and depressions in adolescents. And, and, and thanks for coming on the show today. Uh, you're listening to Transformational Pediatrics of Children's Mercy, Kansas City. For more information, you can go to childrensmercy.org. That's childrensmercy.org. I'm Dr. Mike Smith. Thanks for listening.